This is WJR's Business Biography. Now here's your host, Jeff Sloan. Welcome to Business Biography. I'm your host, Jeff Sloan. Today we're featuring a story of entrepreneurial success that starts in Glasgow, Scotland, where a young lady grew up, was educated, and ultimately made her way to the land of opportunity to complete her education and to start a series of her own businesses, leading to the business success story we're featuring today, the company she owns and operates that's now become a leader in its field. Our featured entrepreneur, Anne-Marie Cronin. Her business, the Anne-Marie Cronin Agency, a marketing, brand building, and public relations firm for physicians and their practices. A business that has grown to have some of the most prominent physicians in our region counted amongst its clients, and one that has proven to deliver real value in creative ways to help physicians grow their practices through creative marketing initiatives. If you're a WJR loyal listener, you'll recognize her voice because she's a regular host of her own radio show right here on WJR. For the past seven years, her show has focused on medical and healthcare issues of interest and features interviews with some of the top docs in their respective fields. Anne-Marie, welcome. Let's start from the beginning, your beginning. Tell us about where you grew up, your childhood, upbringing, and education. So I was born and grew up in Glasgow, Scotland. I'm a UK-British subject, and I was educated over there, stayed over there until I finished high school. And it was really important for my mother to make sure and my grandmother to make sure that I got the type of education that afforded us a really rich education. And what were you like as a kid? I just kind of always thought in my own brain what I wanted to do or where I wanted to go. And I never really followed any regimen. I, I never cared what anybody thought ever, ever, ever. And so I suppose I would be considered, I wasn't wild, but no one could change my mind once I'd made my mind up about something. So I was pretty sort of self-directed. Yeah. What were some of the things you made your mind up about? I mean, like, you know, not the little things, but the bigger things. I think the bigger things were that I, I was always rolling around in my mind. What am I going to do with my life? What am I going to be? Am I going to go to medical school? Am I going to be a researcher? Am I going to, what am I going to do? And that was sort of a struggle because a lot of kids who grow up knowing exactly what they want to be. And then there are people who grow up and they're not really sure what they want to be. And Marie, were there signs in your childhood that would point to the fact that one day you would grow up and become an entrepreneur and own and operate a business of your own one day? I just think it was because I never really relied on the idea of having a job or, you know, belong, working for anybody. I mean, I didn't really have, I knew what I was interested in. I was interested in medicine. I was interested in research. I was interested in retail, but I didn't have any desire to go and apply for a job anywhere or to work for anybody else because I just felt there was enough out there that I could invent on my own. And so you were, I would imagine, very independent by nature. Though. Oh, yes, right. Exactly. From the get-go. No one knows how I had this personality that I just happened to be born with. And you would describe that personality how and as what? I wouldn't say necessarily headstrong, but I would definitely say self-directed. You know, that when people would talk to me or give me advice or tell me I should do this or that, I would think about it and then think about, well, what's the other alternative? So I didn't just simply sit back and do what I was told all the time. Did you ever do what you right. were told? <laughs> Probably not. Well, I mean, I did to a certain extent, sure, because I went to a very regimented school system. So we had to toe the line and take all the classes that we didn't want to take. But, um, you know, I've been very thankful for my education in Great Britain. And tell me again when you came to America. 
I think it was like 16, 17, right after high school. I came here because my mother and father were here at the time, and uh, they were very strongly adamant, and my mother especially, about me finishing my high school education in the UK because it was a much more rigorous education. And then when I was done there, I could come here and then start off pursuing whatever college or whatever I wanted to do after that. They were here before me, in other words. They'd been here for a long time, and I was staying with my grandparents. And then eventually I was told, okay, you've got to finish up high school, and then you can come over. And you did come over, and you went to Cleveland. Right, exactly. My mother had already, she had already been here already. My father had been coming here since I was very young. I mean, before I even started school in the UK, and uh, they eventually got divorced, and then My mother stayed on here, so it was inevitable that I would be brought over here as soon as my high school education was over. So I kind of sort of knew that was going to happen. And uh, I stayed with my grandmother, and then I stayed with my aunt. And then eventually my mother came and got me. School's over. Okay, you're moving. And so I was kind of brought here kicking and screaming and landed here and then had to figure out where do I go from here? What do I want to be? What do I want to do? And while in Cleveland, you attended John Carroll University. You know, liberal arts and majored in French literature and psychology. Actually, my mother subsequently got divorced and was living in Cleveland. And so I came to Cleveland and there didn't seem to be too much going on there. So I knew some people who lived in Canada, Windsor, and who lived in Gross Point. And I thought, let me stop and see what's going on in Detroit. And then I came up here, wound up staying here went to Wayne State and stayed at Wayne State, majoring, continuing on in in psychology, research psychology, went through pre-med. And I think that was how I got my background of interest in medicine and biochemistry and in, you know, basically healthcare. And, you know, met my husband, got married, and then just was sort of planted here. Okay. So when you graduated from university with a liberal arts education, you first went into retail. No, I didn't really go directly into retail. I kind of lingered for a long time in school, taking all kinds of other side courses and, uh, you know, just kept my interest in staying on at Wayne State. And I was teaching abnormal psych at a point and uh, was very interested in research. But then one of my advisors told me, this is not for you. This is not your life. Don't do research. Find something else to do that's more dramatic, that fits your profile more. And I thought it was funny and it was a joke. And I literally, you know, went home and decided that I was going to open up a retail store of which I had no background in whatsoever. And do that she did. Having no background whatsoever at the point of entry into any given endeavor has proven to be no impediment for this entrepreneur. If it could be done, she figured it out and did it. Coming up in our next segment, we'll hear how this would-be researcher turns entrepreneur and opens a retail store in Birmingham, Michigan, focused on high-end women's fashion. You're listening to the story of Anne-Marie Cronin and the entrepreneurial journey that led her to owning and operating one of the premier specialty branding and marketing firms in our region, known as the Anne-Marie Cronin Agency. Back with more right after this break on Business Biography. Welcome back to WJR's Business Biography with your host, Jeff Sloan. Welcome back to Business Biography. I'm your host, Jeff Sloan. Today, we're featuring the story of entrepreneur Anne-Marie Cronin and her business, the Anne-Marie Cronin Agency. Picking up our story, following the completion of her education, 
Anne-Marie on her way to becoming a researcher? But oh wait, what did that would-be researcher do upon completing her education? So that was when I went out and opened up a retail store and I was there for 10 years in downtown Birmingham. You know, it started off as La Parfumerie in, in the beginning and then we changed the name to Anne-Marie and then we were, you know, Anne-Marie for the next 10 years. Wait, Anne-Marie, you went to school to become a researcher, yet you opened up a retail store. What did you know about the retail business? What did you know about business? I knew nothing about business. I opened up a retail store and I couldn't even figure out how to do sales tax. I knew nothing about inventory. I knew nothing about nothing about nothing. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to open up a retail store because I didn't like the way retail was in this country. And I thought they were doing it all wrong and that I could reinvent the wheel. And so I opened up a retail store knowing less than nothing. I mean, it was it's embarrassing to tell you how underqualified I was to just walk out and rent a store in Birmingham, Michigan and then start ordering hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of inventory and not a clue about how to run a business. I mean, zero clue. And there wasn't a you around in those days that I could call. So it was like, you you either sink or swim, and you have to figure out a way to keep swimming. And it wasn't hard, by the way, because I knew retail was wrong in this country. So it was like, I really can't fail at this because I can see that how retail is and retail stores wasn't good. And actually, when, when, when these retail stores, when, they, when I eventually went into marketing, they actually hired me. So I guess I was doing something right. And do something right, you obviously were. Your store was around, I think, for 10 years in Birmingham and uh, was very successful. How did you do that? You knew nothing about nothing, yet it was very successful. Well, it helps to have an accent and it helps to just get on the phone and call people. And eventually after you make a hundred calls, somebody listens to you and says, well, and that was exactly what happened with the store itself. I had no background. I had no qualifications at all. I had no financial statement at all. And my landlord was the judge, I think a state judge, and he owned the building that I was in. And I just begged him to give me the building. And he said, you better not let me down. And I said, no, I won't. And so I was able to talk somebody into letting me lease a store for 10 years. And thereafter, it was just figuring out how you could make relationships and just keep calling and dialing and calling and dialing. And eventually somebody listens to you and eventually somebody tells you what you ought to do. And then it just goes from there. And you just have to have courage and belief in yourself. What were you selling in the retail stores? Clothing? Fashion? We had clothing. We had fashion. We, had, we started off as a perfumery because there are no La Parfumeries in this country. So I thought, well, I have, no, I have a lot of knowledge in that regard. So I knew that I'd be able to sell perfumes and cosmetics. And then it grew into retail clothing. So we had a huge jewelry department and um, that did very well. The clothing lines did well. The perfume lines were very heavily edited, so I knew exactly what I wanted. We sold basically everything but shoes, ready to wear, you know, high fashion. And um, it was a very unique store. And we just had a, a whole different method of doing everything. We did nothing like what the department stores were doing. Nothing. And so at some point it went from you taking this risk and having a dream of owning a successful retail store, having the need to have that store become successful to it actually becoming so. Yeah, but that really wasn't hard at all because when you look around you and you see the other models that are not doing it right, then it's easy to do it right because you can always improve on what, you know, that's the question or that's the thing that I always say to people is if you see a gap or if you see a hole or if you say to yourself, why are they doing it this way when they can do it that way? Well, you do it that way then and show them how to do it. Does that make sense? It does. 
It, well, it makes sense for you, and that's part of why we're featuring you. You know, everybody has their way to achieve success. Everybody thinks they have a way to achieve success. Some realize it, some don't. You have a certain style, and it's you. It's vintage Anne-Marie, that's for sure. You've got now a successful retail store in Birmingham. How do you think you were able to make this so successful, and, and what were some of the key moves and tactics you used to make it so? Basically, everybody thought that you, in order to survive in retail in this suburban Detroit area, you had to be a discount store. You had to be cutting your prices. You had to be offering buy one, get one free. So I took the stance that I'm going to mark everything up 20% above manufacturer's suggested retail price. So lines like Chanel and National lines that had manufacturer's suggested retail price, I just simply added 20% on. So we were more expensive than everybody. And you could buy anything at my store that you could buy elsewhere. It was cheaper than where you bought it in my store. But they didn't have valet parking. They didn't serve champagne. They didn't have a harpist playing on Saturday. It was all about customer, elite customer service. It was all about letting people come in and and have a, it was a different experience altogether. It wasn't laid out like a retail store. And we just felt like, you know, when customers came in, they should be welcome. They're your friend. And it's not about the money. It's not about the price. It is about letting them feel as though they're important because I think one of the big issues in this country in general is alienation and feeling lost and feeling disengaged. And so as a psychologist, I understood that that's the way most people are coming in. And so I wanted them to come in and realize it's not about the price. It's about this is a different environment. This is an entirely different environment. You're coming in to be in. It was a luxurious environment. But it was also um, an environment where it wasn't about the price anymore. And nobody cared. (laughs) You know, Jacobson sent their GM over to say to me, you know what, you're way overpricing your merchandise. And I said, so what? We outsold you by $3 million. So obviously people don't care about that. They'd rather go in and be served by somebody who cares about them and knows how to handle them and who will valet park their car and bring them in lunch and, you know, not put the pressure on them of, hi, what do you want? Make up your mind. You got three minutes to make up your mind and come to the counter and buy this and go out the door. And then you're a nobody back again, being a nobody. Yeah. So customer service, customer experience, the things that make the difference, the value add. Everything. I mean, I could tell you story after story about I get calls from a customer that said, oh, I need to buy this for, you know, it was my son's bar mitzvah or I forgot to get this in your clothes. And I'd say, hold on, just wait, let me run and I'll open up the store. You know, it didn't matter. We, we'd get calls all the time about, oh, I, you know, you're closed at five o'clock. You make up your mind and you want it. I'll come back and I'll open up the store for you. What's the big deal? Do you think Jacobson's is going to do that? I don't think so. You know, the salespeople would come in every Saturday morning and they'd come in two hours before the store opened and we'd just sit and talk to one another about what happened in our week. I was very involved in their ups and downs and their lives and I just felt as though I'm nothing without them. I really need them. I need them to understand my philosophy and when I'm gone, I need them to be me. And so that is extremely important. You just can't be disassociated from your sales help or the people that are helping you to survive, whether it's in retail or any other business. It's immensely important. It's totally important. I mean, it's everything. And so, Anne-Marie, here you were. You clearly had a strong handle on everything. You were running your business effectively, working with your team, providing a superior level of customer service. And as I said, it was working. So at this point, were you feeling that you had attained a level of success? You were successful with your retail store. Yeah, it took a while. And I remember when I first opened up, it was a long time of sitting and waiting and sitting and waiting 
and just wondering if, uh, you know, I was ever going to be able to just make more than my rent. But I was convinced that if I do it my way and if I care more about the person and there's humanity in retail and if I, you know, care more about the experience than I do about cutting my prices. And I had lots of other stores that would come and say to me, unless you discount, you're not going to make it. And in fact, I know of a large store over in West Bloomfield that was discount selling the same merchandise that I was selling and he went out of business. When Chanel comes in to see you from New York to find out how come a third tier store is out selling a major department store, what's going on here? And I said, well, we just have a different way of selling. In the absence of, like you said, you knew nothing about retail, but you were so successful. Why do you think that was? Because I could see what was wrong with the way department stores were, were handling their customers and how they were selling and how they weren't connecting with customers and how it was like walking into a zoo or like into a museum and nobody was there to help you. They were just basically order takers and money takers. And, you know, you were just lost wandering around aimlessly going from counter to counter. And I thought, I don't want to be anything like that at all. So everybody that walked in the door was important. And we were an entirely different model from any other store. I mean, I felt like anybody could figure this out because you've got to look at what is your experience as a consumer when you go in to buy something? Do you feel lost? Do you feel overlooked? Do you feel as though all they care about is ringing you up at the cash register and then letting you walk out the door? Or do they really care about, you know, you as a human being? And it wasn't just knowing about business or figuring out how you were going to approach retail differently. You also had to have the right product mix. You need to figure out what it was that your store should be selling to your target demographic. What was the inventory that you carried in the store? Women's clothing, perfume, everything but shoes, actually. It was a women's specialty store. Who was the buyer? <laughs> well, mo mostly I was. You were the buyer? Yeah. So you obviously had a good fashion sense. I mean, you're here in Birmingham. It's an sure. upscale market, demanding customer. Right. Customer on the leading edge of fashion, presumably. Right. I probably did have a strong fashion sense. I mean, I just knew what looked good and I liked things that were different, extraordinary. It was a very narrow scope. I wasn't a department store having, it's kind of like Neiman Marcus. It was, you know, small, narrow, focused. You know, I had certain perfume lines, but not all of them. I had jewelry lines, but not all of them. We had antique vintage jewelry, but just small selections of stuff. And the lines that I bought in New York, and, you know, overseas and from different designers. And did you build a really strong base of regular customers? Oh, sure. I mean, absolutely, because it was an entirely different experience. It didn't look like a retail store. It looked like an art gallery. People would walk in and say, is this a store? Is it an art gallery? Is it, you know, we decorated it with French furniture and chairs. And we had a harpist come in on Saturday. And, you know, when people came in, we wanted them to feel as though you're visiting us. You're not coming in necessarily to buy, but you can look at what we have. And we're happy to tell you and show you what we've got. And then people just started flocking in and it became extremely busy immediately. So the researcher turned entrepreneur opens a fashion boutique knowing nothing about retail in the very competitive and dare I say, even demanding Birmingham market and grows it to a great success. Then given what she learned as a retailer herself and understanding that the market was poorly underserved with marketing, branding, and PR services, the retailer decides to start anew to establish her next business enterprise, the Anne-Marie Cronin Agency. How did that go? 
We're headed to a quick break, but we'll be back right here to continue featuring the entrepreneurial journey of Anne-Marie Cronin right here on Business Biography. Welcome back to WJR's Business Biography with your host, Jeff Sloan. Welcome back to Business Biography. I'm your host, Jeff Sloan. Today, we're featuring the story of Anne-Marie Cronin and her business, the Anne-Marie Cronin Agency. Anne-Marie, I have to ask, here you were with success at hand with your retail fashion boutique in Birmingham, and yet you decided you were done with that and turned your attention instead to opening a new business, the business you're in today, the Anne-Marie Cronin Agency, which provides marketing, branding, and PR services, and you closed your store. You know, I've got to ask that your success in the retail space begs the question, why did you get out of the retail business and turn your attention instead to establishing a new business? Well, that was because when we became successful financially and I knew I had nothing to worry about and I knew that we'd already reached that level of not, we're not competing with major department stores anymore. And that was like a turning point. So the next move was, you know, at the end of the 10-year lease, I need to make some structural changes in the building. If we're going to stay here, I wanted to buy the building. And unfortunately, my landlord wasn't willing to sell the building. So it was a matter of either you re-sign the lease or, you know, you're, you're going to be stuck again. At the, the, and actually, they doubled my rent. So I was doing so well that my landlord decided to not increase it by 20%, but basically double it. And I said, no. So I decided it was time to move on. And then I just decided, you know what, I'm just going to become a retail consultant and the stores that basically knew of me would hire me to be their marketing consultant. So as I said, my first clients were Saks, Neiman Marcus, and um, I'm trying to think if it was Jacobson's. I think Jacobson's at the time hired me. I do remember going to Jackson and consulting with them to, so they could find out how they could change to be more successful. And this became... Your new business. This was your... Yeah, right. My new business was that I became, I just immediately after I closed my store, decided to just call myself Anne-Marie Cronin Agency, you know, marketing and retail consultants. And basically my first clients were all were retail stores. And I just have to ask you, Anne-Marie, and what seems to be a recurring theme, and this certainly underscores your fearless nature Here you find yourself getting into a business again where you have no formal training, no experience, no education as a marketing consultant, and yet here you are representing some of the biggest retailer and retailer brands in the business. How and why did you feel you were equipped to be able to provide this guidance to these significant brands? Because I'd been successful in retail and I could go in and look at a retail store and figure out what they were doing wrong or what they needed to change or how they needed to adapt. And it wasn't that hard. I think when you have an idea and you feel as though you can improve upon what already exists, like I said, if you see a hole or you see a gap, then why not change it and be that solution to the hole or the gap? Being a research psychologist, I really was exposed to a lot of psychiatrists and psychologists, so I understood a lot about you know, the human mind and motivation. And so I think that the psychological background certainly was very helpful. I just really felt at the time that, listen, I can help other small retail stores. If I was able to make myself successful with no background whatsoever in retail or in business, for that matter of fact, 
I had absolutely zero training. I didn't even work in a retail store. So I was coming out of nowhere. And if I made it successful, then you can too. And it can be done and you prove that it can be done. So the, the Amory Cronin Agency, you, your tagline says uh, it's an agency in advertising, PR, specializes in branding and creating customized advertising campaigns for upscale clients. Right. Yeah. Tell us about who your target clients are when you say upscale clients. Well, I actually, at that point in time, I mean, this is going back a while, and I think it's because of we were doing the type of retail I was doing, the type of retailers who were hiring me to be their consultants were obviously high-end retail stores. They weren't discount stores or, you know, middle-of-the-road type stores. They were basically very sort of exclusive stores that were hiring me to come in and be their consultant. And then that happened for about a year. And then all of a sudden I started getting called by doctors. So everything absolutely changed, you know, 100%. Everything just went right out of retail and right into medicine. I got a call from two doctors in New York who found me and called me and said, we want to hire you to market our clinics that we're opening up in the Michigan area. And my first answer to them was, I don't represent doctors. And they said, well, neither does anyone else. And I said, why don't you call the big box agencies? They said, yes, we have, but uh, they, they just don't. And then I started to look around and I realized that, yes, all the big box ad agencies don't represent doctors. And so there was a hole in the market. And I said, well, let me figure this out and see if I can talk to them and see if I can help them with absolutely no thought that it would go anywhere. And it just completely snowballed. And then it became that after a while, even although I had other retail clients, I had banks, I had car dealerships, and I had, you know, I was basically doing basic marketing and advertising. And then all of a sudden I had doctors calling one after the other after the other. And I suddenly saw that, wow, there's this massive need out there for doctors because they never were taught anything about business. They were taught nothing about marketing. They were taught nothing about advertising. And so they didn't know how to sell themselves and they didn't know how to reach out to their consumer because all of their patients are still consumers. So that's how all of a sudden I just really got almost buried in the demand. The demand was huge. So you recognize this huge underserved marketing need for doctors and their practices at this point and pointed your attention exclusively towards serving that market and that demographic. And the real beauty here is that once you started to establish yourself as providing this service to doctors, they were coming after you as opposed to you having to go out and knock on doors to attract new business. I just knew that I was getting a lot of calls from a lot of doctors after the first one or two or three or four spoke to me and my phone number was just getting handed around. And so I felt like each time I went out to see a new doctor or surgeon or medical group that it was like, they're calling me. I never solicited anybody. So they were calling me because they got my number from someone else. And then I'd sit and listen to what their objectives were. And I'd say, well, this is easy. It's not, this is... <laughs> This is actually easier than retail because most doctors have no competition. And so if you've got no competition and you've got an open marketplace, this is an easy, easy step. If you look at who's advertising on TV and radio, it's the pharma companies, the hospitals, the big medical groups. You hardly ever see marketing or advertising for individual medical doctors that are providing real healthcare services. And in the beginning, doctors didn't advertise. And what you saw was maybe plastic surgeons and Cosmetic dentists were advertising, and then all of a sudden the whole medical market blew open with managed care, and now everybody was 
out for their own, figuring out how am I going to build a practice? How am I going to market myself? How am I going to let the population know I'm here and what I do? And so it just was a market that just opened up on itself and just kind of landed on my shoulders. So I never solicited it. And so what were some of the key tenets and philosophies to your approach to marketing a a physician or a medical practice? It was pretty simple. I would just sit down and I do an interview with the doctor and find out what the motivation was and what he does that's different and where he wants to go or he or she. And then it's very simple to write the story. I think I was very fortunate that for some reason or other, I became a very good writer. I think I was just sort of maybe born that way. I don't know. And it was just easy for me to write for our magazine. I published MD News. I mean, I did a lot of medical journalism and writing. And so once you tell the story of somebody, it just became a matter of how do we put the story out? You know, what's the next step to putting the story out there? So to me, it wasn't challenging at all. In fact, I thought it was way easier than retail marketing, way easier. Because in the medical industry, there is no competition. There is no competition at all. So if you have no competition, then it's very simple. You just put the story out there and, you know, put it out there and they'll come. And that's what you did. And is that what happened? Yeah, that's exactly what happened. And then it just simply grew and it just became bigger and the demand became bigger. And it was amazing because my phone number was getting passed around amongst everybody and I was getting calls that basically at a certain point in time I almost couldn't handle. And I just knew that, okay, the method is that I have to interview these doctors and find out what their needs are. And plus, I always kind of thought of myself as being the patient advocate because I realized that patients were missing the connection just as much as the physicians were missing the connection. It's how do we join these people up together? Because when you're looking for a physician, it's, you know, it's like a needle in a haystack. Who do you go to? How do you find the physician? And especially with specialists, you know, if you wind up being diagnosed with something, who do you go to? And the shift to doctors as the target demographic turned out to be a huge win for Anne-Marie and the Anne-Marie Cronin Agency. Now with more business than she ever dreamed of, most of it coming to her rather than Anne-Marie having to go out and chase it. The Anne-Marie Cronin Agency establishes itself as the go-to source for doctors needing to help market themselves and their practices. You're listening to Business Biography. Back with more in a minute, right after this break. Welcome back to WJR's Business Biography with your host, Jeff Sloan. Welcome back to Business Biography. I'm your host, Jeff Sloan. Today, featuring the story of Anne-Marie Cronin and the marketing, branding, and PR agency she created, known as the Anne-Marie Cronin Agency, and the fearless entrepreneurial journey she took to create that business and make it a success. So, Anne-Marie, here you found yourself at the helm now of your second successful business venture. Right. Your confidence certainly must have been high at that point. You're, you, you must have felt very capable and very confident that you could succeed. I really wasn't worried about whether I succeeded or not. I just thought that it was an easy, there was no challenge there. It was easy. I mean, it was, you know, they have a story to tell and it's pretty easy. You've just got to put the story out there. So I, I knew that it would work. I mean, I just knew that the difference was that you need to be able to tell your story because there's an audience that's listening and waiting to find out who you are and what you do. That's the way it is with all marketing and advertising. 
it's not about what's on sale. It's not about, you know, this weekend we're having a 50% sale, run in and get this, you know, come and buy this mattress because it's half off this weekend. That's not the point of why you buy a mattress, you know, or why you go to a doctor. So you can't sell a doctor by him being on sale, him or her being on sale. So what is it about? How do you make it happen? What is it about? It's about, I think that most, well, I would say that probably all doctors become doctors because they have a passion for medicine and they want to heal. And I really don't think they go in it for the money. And certainly now they're not going in it for the money because of the huge financial debt that most of my clients have. Many doctors are in debt by two to $600,000. And so the return on investment for them is not great. So they have to love and have a passion for what they do. And I really respected that. And I thought, I see where you're coming from. You're kind of lost here knowing that, imagine coming out of medical school with three or four or $500,000 worth of medical school debt. And you've got that on your shoulder at the same time as you're starting a practice. And how do you reach, how do you reach the patients out there? I mean, how do you, I mean, it's, it's huge. How do you reach patients? And you can't just sit and wait for referrals because you'll be waiting for referrals for years. And there's also a lack of transparency in the American medical system. So, I mean, I think that (laughs) there's kind of a naivety, I think, that most doctors have when they come out. They're certainly not as slick as the people that are in business or the people that are in retail or the people that are in banking or like car dealers. They're very slick. They know what's going on. They've been advertising forever. And so they know how to market themselves and how, what to do in order to get somebody to buy their car or come to their bank. And they've been doing it for years. But let's take your average doctor who comes out of medical school. He's just a lost soul. And how are they going to reach patients? And I feel very, very, very sorry for patients because there are so many people out there that are suffering from diseases, from misdiagnosis, from underdiagnosis, from going to getting caught in the wrong system. My passion was, how do I connect the dots? Because there are so many patients out there, and I've known many of them, you've known many of them, who haven't gotten to the right doctor or who haven't been diagnosed in time. And now that we are in this new age of where we have the capabilities now in this country through technology to diagnose and prevent heart attack and stroke and to diagnose the 50 cancers that are the most deadly cancers, but nobody knows about it because they're not covered by insurance, they're not being advertised. And so your average American is out there just saying, well, I could be one of the 600,000 people that died last year from a heart attack, according to the CDC's figures. So how do you prevent that? And they have the technology in this country. It exists. It's for real. You can prevent a heart attack. You can prevent stroke. And now we have this fabulous blood test that detects the deadly cancers, pancreatic cancer, liver cancer, ovarian cancer, lung cancer, all the ones that are death sentences. Is there anything you can tell us about, you know, is there any way you can paint the picture of the level of a success that you've achieved and what makes it so unique? It's a very solid business as far as I'm concerned, because there are always going to be doctors who are going to need to be marketed. They have to in order to exist. And so from that point of view, I just wind up with a waiting list. I mean, I get calls and I say, I can't take you right now. If you're willing to wait two or three months, I can call you when I have an opening to take, you know, the next one on because there's just more. I mean, there's like, what, 800,000 doctors out there. Well, you know, we can't take them all. And no one else is doing what I do. So it just sort of fell on my shoulders, I think, naturally. Why do you think that, you know, being such a great business, why aren't there others doing what you do? 
First of all, you kind of almost have to have some kind of medical or scientific background so that you understand what they're doing. And also, I think it's got to do with your personality. You know, I'm a very straightforward, straight shooter. And I think a lot of it just has to do with the way I deal with doctors and the public and the radio show. And I'm not scared of doctors and I'm certainly not scared of the hospitals or, and I'm not scared of the FDA either or the American Medical Association. So I call it as I see it. And I think having grown up in the UK where we were, lived on socialized medicine was an entirely different experience. And it wasn't something people had to worry about there. We grew up with no worries whatsoever about medical care or the cost of pharma. Stop and think about the fact that there are patients out there that are paying $1,000 a month for insulin. Many medications are up there at $1,000 or more, and there's co-pays and there's deductibles. It's a huge, huge, huge expense for the average American or the average patient. And at the other end, you know, you've got doctors who need to basically to sell their product, which is themselves, their cures, their remedies, their ability to get you from ill health to good health. So it's just that <laughs> there's a huge population on either side and somebody has to you know, connect the dots. And um, I don't know, it's, it's been interesting to me that there are no other medical marketing agencies out there. I mean, certainly in the Detroit area, it's all about cars, all about business, all about cars. And to sit down with a doctor and even to be talking about what the doctor does, you have to have some kind of biological or medical background, which I was fortunate because neurological psychology provided me, at least I went through pre-med, so at least I had some kind of biological background that I could understand what they were talking about. Uniquely qualified and positioned, bold and fearless, seeing opportunity and seizing on it. Those are the hallmarks of Anne-Marie Cronin's entrepreneurial success, the hallmarks of any winning entrepreneur. Anne-Marie, one last thing. What drives you? It wasn't the money that drove me. It was the belief that if you are doing something and you have integrity and you see a hole or a gap that you can fill it, just go for it and don't let anyone ever stop you. You've been listening to The Entrepreneurial Journey of Anne-Marie Cronin, right here on this edition of Business Biography. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening to Business Biography on the great voice of the Great Lakes, 760 WJR.